Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I, we get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. Hey, it's going to be your church and your turn up. So listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Roto Going for the Green Daily Fantasy Golf Podcast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. I am joined, as always, by Colin Drew, but also special guest. I actually think the the first time in the history of uh, Colin and I doing the show together, we have uh, a guest on who wants to come on and is excited to talk about Daily Fantasy Golf. So it's not Drew Dinkmeyer. It's not Michael Leone. It is uh, Brian Hooper. You guys probably know him as Brick 75 or 75. I, because it's from poker, I don't actually know which one it is. But uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Very the, excited. The number one PGA DFS player in the world, at least according to Rotogrind's rankings. So yeah. we know you're at least playing at the highest stakes possible. Uh, but guy who plays DFS across all sports, kind of all levels, all all buying levels, all sites from everything that I've heard. Is there anything that you that you don't play right now? Um, uh, League of Legends. <laughs> There's so. got to there's got to be an edge in League of Legends. By the way, this was something I was thinking about the other day, but no one touts it. Like there, there's not projections out there. So like, if you're just a dude who watches a ton of League of Legends on Twitter or on Twitch, rather, there, there, like a hundred percent has to be an edge in that. I agree. Yeah, I think anything where there's not a lot of content or not good content, and um, if it's small stuff, it'll keep it'll keep the the brick seventy fives of the world away from it too. So exactly. yeah, I think you could throw tennis in there. Uh, even though I, I do play tennis, but tennis is a good one right now. I think. Anything small that a lot of the other guys aren't wasting their time on, you can make some good money until uh, until that gets solved. So we'll, we'll get into some of that with uh, PGA DFS topics in a little bit later. Um, wanted to talk a little bit on this podcast. We'll talk our normal podcast, you know, breaking down the Waste Management Phoenix Open. But uh, since we have you on, we also wanted to talk a little bit about your process in DFS and in PGA DFS in general. I think the, the first question that I really had for you was, as you approach, you know, all DFS sports, but especially PGA, where there isn't a ton of public projection sources out there, typically, are you making your own projections for PGA DFS, or are you leveraging market sources, whether it's content providers, Vegas odds, and things like that, to sort of crowdsource the projections process? Yeah, I make my own. I make my own in uh, in all the sports, and I make my own ownership projections in most of the sports as well that are that that's needed. Um, that might include uh, Vegas information in the model. Yep. Um, but uh, no, I don't. I don't aggregate any uh, any other any of the other uh, content providers out there. But um, they are getting sharper for sure. Like two or three years ago, I didn't even use ownership projections because I don't think they were needed. I thought my model is good enough where I would be leveraging in the right spots regardless because everyone right. else was not doing anything right anyways but they the more i look at them now they seem they're, they're you know 100 times better than they than they used to be so you have to use in my opinion at least you have to use ownership percentage yeah and i make the ownership projections that we have at daily roto and i know one of the big things that's changed over the years um is that course history used to be a very big driver of ownership and it's it's still a driver to a degree. It's definitely a driver of talking points on podcasts like ours and others that believe in it even more. But it has pulled back a little bit. You know, you used to get like the Luke Donald examples at RBC Heritage where no matter what the price was, he'd be like 25, 30% owned on the course history. And now it's kind of pulled back where, you know, even though he still has that same course history after like a down year, 
Um, people are, you know, he's coming off at like 5% ownership when in the same spot two years ago, it would probably be 25 or 30%. Um, I wanted to understand is, you know, since you do build your own model, obviously course history and course fit are two of the talking points across the PGA DFS community. Um, where do you sit kind of as incorporating course history or course fit into the projections that you build? Yeah, I'm kind of maybe uh, a little different than if I wouldn't look at it as a binary choice between the two, but let's just, let's just say it was, I would definitely say fit uh, is more important. You know, you could just think, just make an extreme example in your head. What if it was all 18 par fives, 800 yards long, every hole. The longer hitters would have. God, doesn't that sound amazing? I, I'd sign up. <laughs> I'd sign up for so much DFS that week, and I just roster all my favorite dudes. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, you have to imagine at a, some, at a certain point, course fit has to matter. Course history. The uh, I, I'm not a huge fan. Like, uh, first of all, your sample sizes are usually like two or three. They're from years ago. Um, the guy, the person could be completely different. Like he could have had a kid that year. The holes are in different spots. What was the weather like that day? Um, I, I, I just don't, uh, and, and this is, I guess, a little separately than the guys who actually live on the course and play there constantly, you know, that's a little bit of a different, I've never seen any studies on that, but I had, there are studies out there on, on course history and there's, there's like basically no, uh, correlation between it between yeah, the fantasy point. And the, the folks at Data Golf who, who do the fantasy projections that we have at Daily Roto had found some stuff that was similar. I think they've um, evolved a little bit over the, the previous couple of years. They still view course fit as a lot more powerful and it's something that was layered into the model um, this year. But course history, you know, they found it is a little bit more predictive on some courses like Augusta where it's a strong field and you have a lot larger sample size of players who might have been playing at pretty similar levels over that period of time. And um, but for most of the events, guys don't play enough rounds and it's um, too hard to control for like noise and what their skill level was kind of at that point in time. So I think that aligns pretty much. Yeah, I think yeah, I mean, that I think that seems about right. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask that we don't actually have here in our little show sheet is how much does golf compare to NFL, NBA, baseball? How much is the Vegas market stuff feeding into that? Because my so from an outsider's perspective and like just like i i bet on a lot of stuff not even saying i'm i'm good at it but i just like to follow the markets and i like to bet on stuff i feel like the golf markets are relatively low liquidity relative to some of these other ones and as we were kind of chatting about before the show the fact that the outrights are not two-way markets make them pretty suspect as well so like how much is vegas stuff feeding into your golf models yeah, all not all sports books aren't created equal, right? Some of them are yeah. market leaders, and some of them aren't. So you got to pay attention. Follow your book. Follow some books for a while. See which ones are adjusting their odds every day, or you know, every hour or couple hours. And the ones that are more frequently changing are going to be the ones they're taking on. That it's more likely that they're the market leader. And so um, there are some two-way markets out there too. Uh, yeah, that you can that you can look for. But if they just throw up, you know, uh, a line on Monday and it doesn't change, I, you're, how sharp is that information going to be? Here, but here's, here's another thing, Davis, is um, the, the odds, though, they're, they are reflective of ownership percentage. So yeah. you, can, you can gain a lot from them that way, which is going to be a huge advantage over the field if you know how to use it right. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. The single biggest input into my ownership model is the top 20 odds markets. And there's a bunch of other stuff that are important as well. Um, but I think that now it's at a point where the most of the people who are playing are at a minimum kind of looking at the cursory ads. They might not look at the closing lines, but they're at least when they put together their spreadsheets on Monday or Tuesday, that's one of the inputs that are going in there. Um, so you said that you make your own ownership projections. So I, I know that it has to play a role in your process. And I wanted to talk through a little bit, you know, as we talk about the farmer's insurance, um, I noticed last week that some of your biggest overweight positions in the $5 drive the green, which is for those of you guys who don't play, it's kind of the lottery style tournament, the low dollar buy in 150 max, hundred thousand plus entrance with a big first place prize. Um, and it looked like some of the mid tier plays that you were on were kind of chalky, kind of like 10 to 15% owned Keegan Bradley, Byung-Hun on were two of those guys. But then towards the top end, you had some pretty contrarian players in there. 
Tiger Woods, Brant Seneker, Jordan Spieth, and Patrick Reed were actually some of your biggest leverage positions in that specific tournament. I know that might not be the same way you approach a $1,500 buy-in or a cash game. Um, it seems like the answer is probably a large one, but how much of a role does PGA DFS ownership projections play into your process? Um, in GPP large field, it's a huge part. Um, and, that, and you can see by just looking at my you know, last few week um, exposures that I'm going to be over the field on, on some mid, middle-owned or lower-owned guys a decent amount, actually in, in, in a lot of sports. Um, but, uh, you know, definitely golf with how, uh, how much variance there is. I think it's a, it's a smart play to, 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 to play a kind of a, a contrarian strategy. But, you know, like you said there too, it's a, ba it's a balance just based off my lineups last week. I'm not just going to throw in, you know, six, 2% players, right? I'm, I mean, Tiger, Tiger was one of my higher on players, but he was still owned, whatever. What, what was he last week? 16, 17% or something yeah, like, like that? Yeah, 15-ish. 15-ish, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the, the difference between, I don't know if you, if you watch any of my ownership videos, but the, the higher, the more owned a player is, the less it matters as much when you go between, like, so like the difference between like a 50% owned player and a 45% owned player, it does, it's, not, it's not that much difference yeah. as it is between like 12 and 2. Yeah. Or, you know, eight. so like it's, with Tiger, the, those are kind of the sweet spots in my opinion. Um, but I don't go looking, I don't want someone to get me, get me wrong there. I don't go looking and be like, okay, who's 12% owned? That's a sweet spot guy. I'm going to put him in there. It's still all based off of my projections in ownership and how I apply that. Yeah. You got to like that guy a little bit as well. So I guess one of the subscribers had a question is, are you like, is, and it seems like you weren't going through and looking for a low owned player like Tiger. Are you, but are you worried more about ownership at the player level or are you worried about ownership of your your six-man roster? Yeah, so this is the discussion Alex Baker and I had. And uh, uh, I am on the individual, if we're doing teams here, I'm, I'm on team team individual. Ownership matters more than on the, uh, the full, the, the full six-man in golf anyways. Um, it, it, just because the way I think about it is – you know, if you have a player who is, if, you have, if you're picking between two players and they have identical salaries, identical projections, but one of them has a different ownership percentage, you automatically make money by taking a lower owned guy. That's just how the math works out, and I show it in my, one of my videos. So if you're doing it on a, uh, if you're doing it on a full team percentage ownership level, you might be making mistakes in there. I'm not sure if you are. And if you're using some randomness and, and uniques, uh, you might, you probably aren't, but you might, you might be. So, um, and you know what, honestly, I'm, I'm, I could be convinced the other way if someone has a better argument, but uh, that's the way I do it. Well, Colin and I have notedly been team cumulative ownership percentage, which yeah. I mean, I, I don't feel super strongly about it, I guess my thinking would be the number one most important thing because we if we accept that golf is a highly variant game the most important thing you can be doing is just creating unique lineups overall like that should be that should be goal number one basically and then and then number two you start thinking about total projected points yeah i guess the reason for me i think about it at the team level um is that I don't feel like you always need the best leverage plays on the slate jammed into one lineup. And you kind of got to that a little bit saying you don't need six, 2% guys together in the same lineup. And so um, if you have already kind of created a situation where three or four of your spots are so contrarian that if they go right, you, you might just want the best player in those last two. Um, and I agree if projections are always identical and the price points identical, then you would always take the lower ownership. But when you start getting into maybe a guy with 42% top 20 odds at 20% ownership versus a guy with 40% top 20 odds at 15% ownership, it becomes like a little bit more complex. And depending on the makeup of the rest of your roster there, uh, sometimes I think just kind of putting in the, the best play makes sense. And that's why I tend to think about things at a team level, especially for golf. Um, I think it's a little different and harder to tease out for other sports where correlations kind of impact things and it's less straightforward. Yeah, for sure. I can agree with that. But here, here, okay, here's a little tip I just thought of. That if let's say you're doing it on a team ownership level, if you if you go through your exposures, and if there's a there's two players like I talked about, 
who are similar in price and similar in um, salary, but one of them's got drastically a different ownership percentage. And then you do your and then you do your style of using ownership to make your lineups. You took total team ownership of the lineups. If that player who's higher owned is used more frequently, you're doing it wrong. I agree. Okay? There, there's no way around that. So I don't know what else to tell you, but like, however you guys want to try to figure this out. Now you guys specifically with people listening, like if 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 that if that is occurring, your process is 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 wrong. That player should be owned less than your exposure. Sorry. I mean, a lot of the times, and this is again, this is very reductive because I'm not, you know, I'm not getting thousands of dollars down a weekend. Most of the time, I will just stone cold like nuke guys who are over twenty percent owned. If like, especially like if they're in between, you know. 7.5k to 9k because a lot of those times those guys get very popular for like strokes gained like touted reasons or course fit reasons or course history reasons and generally there will be very closely uh projected plays you know literally right next to them and you know sometimes that's very actually you know what two times this year the one of the like three highest owned guys has been uh, like just absolutely needed for winning lineups. One was Scotty Scheffler as the most owned guy. Uh, I think that was three weeks ago. And then another was Leishman last week, who was, uh, I think I think he was projected like 16% ownership and obviously won with that crazy round on Sunday. So it has not been a very good feeling watching that happen, but at least I can like comfort myself with Sklansky Bucks. Yeah. Exactly. You have, that's all you have is Sklansky bucks. As long as you have Sklans, you're going to be okay. Off those off, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, all your Sklansky bucks go away. Your real bucks go away. I mean, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do when the chalk goes up. Yeah. Well, you, you didn't have, I didn't have to fade Leishman. I, I, I didn't have to do that. But it, well, it, overall, overall, I do, I do feel more comfortable just not playing. Like 8K guys at 22% owned over five years of playing PGA DFS, they're like the worst plays. Yeah. And sure. I guess that was another kind of follow-up question that um, we got from one of the subscribers was like PGA is unique because the sweat lasts for four days. So in some ways it's excruciating if you're going through swings and then you're only able to play once a week. And then depending on how much you play during the swing season, you know, you might be playing like, 30 events, which is similar to a month's worth of NBA or MLB. Um, so how do you kind of think about like the variance and try to stick to a process or how do you, as someone who always is looking at your own internal process, um, how, you know, at what like intervals do you start to pull up and evaluate things and whether or not you're doing things the right way? You know, there's probably a right answer to that, but the way I do it, might not be right, but it, I, it's just who I am. I'm kind of, the reason I'm doing this is because I, I think it's fun to, 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 to build models and try to figure out the game theory behind it and how to apply ownership percentages. So the model, so I think I've been, you know, based off of Rotogrinders numbers anyways, number one in PJ for like four or five years. And those initial spreadsheets I had back then, they're in the garbage. I don't use anything from them. So like, I constantly, and I was still number one. So I'm constantly just updating, thinking, taking chances and gambling, gambling live with my, intu not my intuitions, but my most recent data or attempts at predicting the next week. I'll throw it out there. And the R's are so low for those who do statistics. The R's are so low in golf mm -hmm. that it's tough to really get some, you know, some sort of like, oh my God, this is it. Here it is. Here's my predictive my my predictive uh, metric that it's gonna win all the money yeah and just anyone who watches golf you know that can't happen like there's no way you could be able to judge this sport you know because it's so variant and guys get high and I, I think that's why a lot of people feel comfortable clinging to some small sample size stuff and narratives around the courses because they're like well you can't predict it anyways like so why can't i lean heavily on my gut and i'm kind of the opposite like if I had one simple way for somebody to play PGA DFS, I would say grab top 20 odds from bet 365, grab a good source of ownership projections and compare deltas in those two and focus on the guys with reasonably decent top 20 odds that are, are less owned than peers priced similarly to them. Um, if, if you had, I guess, advice as far as somebody, whether or not they should start focusing on like FanDuel, DraftKings, Main Slate, Showdown, or like what recommendations for PGA DFS in general would you give to um, smaller bankroll players? 
Um, so for, uh, I guess those are, that's kind of two questions, right? Showdown yeah. and small bankroll. So, so for Showdown, um, I am in the process of updating my model. And I'm actually, for me, being completely restrained by not playing many Showdown, uh, showdown slates. Usually I just fire away even if I don't know if I'm a favorite. But um, so, uh, the, you know, show, the, the problem, the problem is because they changed the whole format. So before, for all of us old PGA grinders, DraftKings basically just did Thursday and Saturday, weekend and and uh, so I had my model set up just for the weekend golf because those were the biggest prize pools. I don't even care about. And then they introduced showdowns, but the prize pools were really small. I kind of wish they would go back. I wish they would do Thursday regular, um, Friday showdown, Saturday weekend, Sunday showdown. I think that would be. Uh, the, 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 just because you you'd feel you feel sick about missing the slates like you're you're sitting there you're looking at these prize pools out there and you're like i gotta make 150 teams yes yeah if, if, yeah, <laughs> if, it's, like, if it's over yeah. 50 grand or whatever like the gpv i'm like god if i'm not it's like you know you're like oh i'm ditching out on work today for no reason i just have to get in there yeah so right. like I, yeah i wish they would make the prize pools better but uh so i don't really have a showdown answer but i would approach it the same way and honestly, you're just your your piece of advice you just gave by comparing deltas of odds and ownership percentage. I think you could win with that. Um, I think you can win with that on both of these uh, types of uh, formats. And and just you know, I say this to pretty much every show I do. Try to make your own projections. It's a good learning process, at the very least. Yeah, um, you might be able to use it. What you what you what you learn now, you might be able to use down the road. Not in real life, but <laughs> in in another sport or something. Um, so you know, try to try to make your own your own projections. And so so that's my advice for showdown, and also my advice for lower stakes for lower stakes guys. Uh, if you don't have the money for um, to 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 get a subscription to Daily Roto, then try to make your own. You know, try to make your own projections. Uh, take some online stats courses. You know, there's the internet has all the world's knowledge on there. You can do it. It's not that hard. And uh, try to make your own. Maybe win a, win a few bucks and then get a Daily Royal subscription and compare your projections to theirs, et cetera, and try to sharpen it up over time. Um, so yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, if I wanted to get better at PGDFS, like one of the things I would do is I would study your exposures as one of the, the better players in the game and understand what you're doing in different tournaments and kind of try to understand why, even if I'm just speculating. Um, are there any other DFS players that you kind of study or that you view as top players that you think people should be researching? I think they should only research me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, don't, you want to play exactly opposite of you, so. <laughs> uh, you, you know, my the thing that comes to my uh, the first thing that comes to my mind when you ask that question is I would be careful of studying players in general, and I'm not saying don't do it, but a lot of these guys are doing what I'm doing and they're switching their models, they're they're guessing, they're gambling live, and they're not doing the exact same thing every week. And you could come in and just be looking at weeks, and 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 just putting putting thoughts in their head that aren't there, right? It, it's called data mining and I've, I've said this before but data mining the best way i've heard it explained is like you're trying you go in a casino you try to write a book about roulette and how to beat roulette and you just write down the the, the dealer rolls the ball and you write down the numbers you write down like five thousand numbers and you go home you throw that information in a spreadsheet run a linear regression right and you're like okay nine hits more frequently on wednesdays right and black is 52% and red, you know, and it's ridiculous to write a book on roulette. But the only reason we know it is because we all know it's a rigged game. We're zero, double, zero, give the casino their odds, and all the other numbers are fixed. You're going to lose over the long run. But in sports, we don't know that, right? We don't know John, you know, if you replace John Rahm, yeah, the law of large numbers does not apply in professional sports as we understand it right now, but everyone understands it for roulette. So, like, you but, you, you see the same result in pro sports, and you're like, oh, that's got to mean something, whereas in roulette, we know it doesn't mean anything. Right. And I, I guess that's, that's the only counterpoint. Sorry. I guess that would be my only counterpoint to someone building their own models. I think a lot of people do try to build their own models. Like, Fantasy National has a really simple – 
interface where you can build your own model using stroke scan data. But I think because of that, a lot of people end up falling into some of that, those data mining effects where they're looking at splits on different grass types that are, are maybe noisy and they don't know how to backtest that. And so um, sometimes if, and that's kind of why I said, like, if you weren't going to pay for a subscription, like the, the thing I would do is just grab the, the market odds and they're not going to be perfect, but you would then figure out maybe how you can add value to those versus like completely doing your own thing. That's exactly what I would do. And, you know, and, and data, and when I say data mining, obviously the garbage in garbage out kind of thought comes to the person who actually does build their own models. But yeah. I do, I, I, I would extract, you know, I think that also extrapolates to just narrative talk, right? Like we've been trained by sports, uh, sports radio since we were kids to, to be like, Oh no, because this is a revenge game. And, you know, LeBron James always plays great in the garden and stuff like that. And you just build up all these kind of narratives in your head that really, if you just replaced it, you know, if you didn't think of it as a human being, you thought of them as a, as a roulette number, you'd probably be better off. Man, you would, you would really hate the Daily Roto Slack channels. <laughs> <laughs> these people, these people live and breathe for their sports radio narratives as it pertains to gambling their money. Yeah, well, because you have to. That what that's what makes you think you're doing something, right? <laughs> right. Oh, hundred percent. Building your own model. I I I know better, and I still do stuff like that, which is actually yeah, probably worse. <laughs> yep. It's human, it's human nature, right? Yeah. It's part well, of let's evolution. let's get into uh, last week a little bit. I know we talked a little bit about your player exposure to some of the guys that you were overweight on. So. Um, seems like there were probably some things going right heading into Sunday where you had some teams that maybe were live. Uh, but in the end, it was Mark Leishman who ran like God on Sunday. Ugh, on Green. Please, please. And Dude, it was so painful. <laughs> just Rom, Rory, Tiger, all sort of in contention, at least within striking distance and really surprising performance, you know, from that final group in general that all kind of more or less ejected, allowing Leishman to come from really deep with the seven under final rounds. Um, I guess that those were, you know, the takeaways for me were the surprising collapse of the top end players in the field. And then uh, Bubba Watson also flashing some form, led the field in strokes gained T to green, always kind of trying to, to figure out where Bubba's at heading into like a week like this. Um, so uh, any takeaways for, for you guys from the farmer's insurance? So I had Rom, I think his six to one in the betting markets. I had Rom in one and done. I had him in like 45% of my DraftKings lineups. I just really, I just really needed him to avoid that round on Sunday. And uh, I, I was at the gym and I watched him tee off and I watched him hit that second shot past the sand into the rough. And I turned it off and I was just like, all right, well, I guess I'm not watching golf today. And uh, it ended up being the correct decision. Yeah, that was brutal. I had him too. Uh, he was like a second or third highest zone for me. And what he started off like, Plus three on the first he was, four. He five. was three over through four. Yeah. 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 And it's like, okay, well, do I have anyone else in the top? Uh, Byung Hung. Um, and oh, Eli. that was, that sucked. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't even that high owned for him. Usually he's yeah. a little more high owned. What did he, plus seven through 12 or something like that? I mean, two days in a row with him. Um, who else, Chris? I don't have my, I don't have last week's info up but yeah no that sunday was brutal and and i didn't look at i didn't look at my uh my my contest list on DraftKings on saturday specifically because i knew i'm like i think i'm doing pretty good here so i didn't want to see it i don't yeah. want to see it go nosedive uh on sunday which can happen on golf you know Big so time. easily yeah and it was obviously a very surreal sunday with the kobe bryant news coming out during that final round and um you know it was hard to really focus on everything that was going on in the golf tournament. Obviously as a dad myself, it was really hard to, to see that news with his daughter and her friends and teammates and stuff like that, which kind of tilted the, the golf viewing experience. I think it'll be pretty interesting for the waste management just because the players do have like now the ability to, um, you know, showcase themselves on the 16th hole and everything. It'll be pretty interesting. Probably some special moments coming up in golf um, related to Kobe on that 16th hole. Cause I know a bunch of the, the tour players are kind of at that age where they were, you know, idolizing athletes like that growing up. I mean, that was, it was, a, it was a crazy thing, especially with the, I mean, it, it would have been really dialed up to 10 had Tiger been in any kind of uh, contending mode that would have been, that would have made it even more, uh, you know, kind of even more so, but we move on to what is, this has historically been one of my 
favorite events. Uh, you know, I mean, and everyone loves this event. It's the Waste Management Open at the TPC Scottsdale. It's uh, a course that lends itself well to a lot of birdies. Uh, basically, basically a driving accuracy and uh, and putting course has the uh, the famous 16th green. It's the it's the stadium hole. Brooks Kepka got his first career win here. Hideki Matsuyama won back-to-back. Uh, it finishes up right before the Super Bowl starts. So we had, you know, that great day where, uh, you know, Ricky Fowler drives his ball over the green on 17, and then Cam Newton loses a Super Bowl to uh, to uh, geriatric Peyton Manning. Uh, basically the worst sports betting day of my entire life. Uh, as unable to cash either Panthers, Futures, or Ricky Fowler winning tickets. Uh, do you Do you like this event, Colin? Yeah, I love it. Um, I mean, it's obviously turned into quite the spe- spectacle, but I think it's like the perfect event leading into the Super Bowl. And so it is, yeah. there's nothing better than uh, kicking back on, on Sunday. And I guess this year, building some showdown lineups for the Super Bowl and sweating some golf and sweating some round four showdown PGA. So definitely a good event. From a DFS perspective, you know, it's kind of middle of the road and par adjusted distance, middle of the road and fairway width. And, you know, beyond like the stadium nature of it, I guess it's like somewhat nondescript as of course, it definitely over-indexes in strokes gained off the tee relative to the average tour event. I think 20% of the strokes gained deviation is driven by off the tee play here compared to an average of 15% with a slightly lighter emphasis on approach. Approach is almost always going to be one of the most important variables, but it's definitely a, a course where you know good drivers of the ball do well, and that ends up being sort of the, the PGA DFS darling. So that always makes it pretty fun too because I feel like the guys that we like to uh, play kind of week in and week out end up setting up pretty well for this event. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. Um, so I guess I guess a couple of the the things to mention about this event is there are, uh, and this is from the the Daily Roto Slack channels. We talked about this last night. Uh, Hideki noted noted uh, extremely good course history guy is per uh, per some of the decimals not maybe the best course fit ever in terms of you know the the stereotype of guy that you would think would do well at a, at a, at a course like this. So probably just a good cautionary tale to, uh, you know, not think that heavily about things like course history as it pertains to wagering on this event. Yeah. Oh, there's also, is it, hasn't Tony Fino like never made a cut here, but he like always projects super well. And so people like never play him here. Yeah. I mean, that it's definitely his, the how I perceive his course fit has not aligned with his actual results I mean you can spend so many narratives around why given the the environment that is here it's a rowdy you know golf event he's 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 a more he's a Mormon dude he's not he's not used to being around the excess I'm I'm not going to be able to control for any of that stuff um (laughs) Brian do you you feel like it, it is setting up similar to how I profiled like a strokes need off the tee slight emphasis how do you see the course fit here yeah, no, that sounds about right. And, you know, this I love this event, personally. I think it's one of the more fun ones. It's kind of uh, uh, just one of the things that's great about golf is how every, you know, just compare this to, like, the Open, right? It's just a completely different environment, weather. It's in the desert. How each uh, event I, – I like how each event can be different, and I'm glad that it's not, you know, it, like some of them, like, this one are so, like, pretentious. Like, some people can be put off by golf yeah. a little bit. So, uh, you know, I – I love the I love the event. I'm just thinking about Tony Finau right now. What do you you said you have your ownership projections? What do you have him at? Um, so That's right now I've got Finau at like twelve and a half percent. Okay, um, I'm, a, I'm a little over that in my first take. It's pretty early. Uh, I would say generally, you know, we put out a first draft of these on Tuesday mornings. I I would um I would bet on them by Wednesday morning, but a lot of stuff changes as far as like the narratives and, and that people spin up. And early in the week, a lot of people focus on course history chatter things like that and then later in the week they focus a little bit more on leverage chatter and so Finau's kind of sandwiched between Hideki Matsuyama and Matt Kuchar both have exceptional course history here and then Gary Woodland profiles decently as well and so I think in, in Xander is a popular place so I think he's kind of sandwiched in the zone where perhaps he would get overlooked um, a little bit this week compared to other weeks. Have you guys noticed that you know, the just the entire DFS world's getting sharper where I'm thinking Gary Gary Woodland burned a whole bunch of people last week. You know, three years ago, he's gonna lose like five, six, seven, eight percent exactly. ownership points, right? This year I'm I I doubt it matters. Maybe a I, point. I I definitely agree with that. I think across all sports, I think people the people that are left in DFS, I guess, are becoming more projections oriented and so 
Um, you saw it with, with football in the NFL season a lot of times too, is, you know, people not chasing good game logs the same way they did in the past and people not fading, you know, bad performances. So uh, I would expect uh, Woodland to kind of be right there where he would be, even if he just, you know, finished 35th last week or whatever. Yeah. NBA is the same way. The little guy low, get no points at 50% owned. And then the next day he's starting again and they still throw 50% ownership on him, which is what they probably should. Which is which is a shame. <laughs> we need more narrative. We need more narrative. I mean, I mean, we are we are we are just <laughs> we are just we are just ten hours removed from Isaiah Hartenstein being eighty percent owned and having five DraftKings points. So uh, there there's still uh, there's still a good chance the DFS is not dead, Brian. I know. Unfortunately, I was one of the fish that had eighty. Oh, <laughs> oh I was I was overweight on eighty percent. As in, I just played him in every lineup that I played. So, so that was a uh, was a good I was experience. Close. I think I was ninety-two. Before we scare off the entire PGA audience and some punt NBA player I've never heard of, <laughs> we can uh, we can talk about course history. Something that people always love. Some of the strongest course histories at this event include Brandon Grace, Hideki Matsuyama. We talked about Bryson DeChambeau, Sungjae M, John Rahm, Andrew Shifley. Byung-Hun on all guys that the PGA DFS community loves. And then relative to their personal baselines, so those were the best histories outright, relative to their personal baselines. Some other, you know, old school PGA DFS darlings from Strokes Game, Peter Green Metrics, Brendan Steele, Scott Piercy, Bubba Oh Watson. my gosh. Time so, machine. Man, it, it feels like a, a course that is built for PGA DFS darlings, which will make it fun. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go too hard on any of those guys, but um, I mean, if you give me a chance to roster Brennan Steele in uh, the year of our Lord 2020, I, I might have to give him a few bumps to get him in. I might have to get like three percent of him. I will say there are some players, and Steele's probably one of them that like those of us who've been playing for like four to five years are are like you see any sign of form from like one of your old school guys, yep. and, and you're ready to like jump back in and. I feel like between that Steele's recent form and the history, he could see a spike. He could be one of those instances where people will chase like a tiny bit. Um, but getting into the field, I guess the the 10K plus range is pretty loaded this week. You got John Rahm, you got JT, Ricky Fowler, Webb Simpson, Hideki Matsuyama, um, all there. I, I think the the top two is pretty obvious. It's, it's, it's Rahm and JT. It's just deciding between those two guys. And I think it's priced pretty efficiently where they should be clearly the number one and two in the field. I don't think, there's going to be any hot takes there. Um, I guess Fowler to me was the guy that stood out is probably being a little bit um, overpriced here. I think Webb might set up as an interesting leverage play, but I, I still prefer like Rahm and JT. It's hard to get away from them in a field, especially since this field is smaller. So it's, you're going to have a higher you know equity of getting six to six or higher odds of getting six to six seen through the cut anyways, just because of the field size. Webb has been so good. Like his 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 like if you if you extended out his recent form to be like the last year of professional golf, he's been like absurd. He's been so good. It's just crazy. Like I don't know. He was he was a guy who was like a a seven thousand six hundred dollar like oh maybe he'll make putts this week type guy for like four years of of PGA DFS, and now he's just like oh no, he's ten thousand dollars in a strong field and like a good leverage play. Well, speaking of narratives, so didn't he have a heart attack uh, and then they, he switched his putting style, right? Am I getting that right, Colin? I did not uh, know he had a heart attack. I didn't know but... about the heart attack. I, I believe the putting thing is true, though. Well, even if he didn't, let's just make it up and throw it out there, and hopefully it changes the ownership. That's just as good. Yeah, that's just – I mean, it's just as real as any other narrative. I, I think the biggest, the biggest narrative for Webb against Webb that a lot of people um, buy into – not really sure where I sit on the fence. It's just that he's not a closer. So he puts up all these top end finishes, but he's got one win, I think, in the last like five or six years and has only won, you know, four or five times on tour throughout his entire career. So I think that's like the the knock that people will throw into web. And I think that's what keeps him off um, and keeps him probably at like 10% ownership in this range that includes Matsuyama, Rom, JT, Xander, kind of all these guys that have, have closed the deal more recently. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's dead on. And uh, at that price, you need him to close. It's, he's, just, he's just up there so high. Um, you know, if we're staying in, in this, this, this range really quick, even though my, my first run of ownerships, not, you know, not the end all be all by any means. We got a couple of days here. Uh, I think even with I'm projecting around to be high owned, I still think I'm going to be slightly over the field. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that. 
I agree with that too. That was like, I'd, I'd always do like a dry run before the podcast, just so I not wildly off with where I might land. And I've got Rahm at like 25% ownership right now and still view both him and JT as good leverage plays. And um, I would probably be in a position where right now I'll end up very underweight on Fowler, very underweight on Hideki and probably over on both Rahm and JT. Our, our ownership projection right now on, uh, on Ricky looks a little low to me. I, I think I think in big field stuff he will be over twenty percent. Like I mean, dude, people love to play Ricky at this golf course. One, so the only thing I would say, and, and Brian kind of hinted at it, but like the things have changed. The dynamics of yeah. PGA DFS have changed, and I totally agree. Two years ago, Fowler would end up owned. He just would have been jammed. I've started yeah. to like manually tweak things in my model, and it's usually improving the RSQ of my results when I compare to actuals and. Um, the model had Ricky a little bit higher, but I think that when people see how close he is to JT, that people are just going to play JT. I mean, as they should. Right. I'm at 18 and a half on and, you know, I, I, you're right though. I, I don't know. I think that, I think that's where I have him too. 18, 18 and a half. Exactly. Oh, you have him at two? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You sure you're not um, using my stuff? No. <laughs> um, the, it's based off my projection, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Davis is right. Maybe, maybe there's still a couple clicks left in the in the field out there. So, also, I like. Um, I also am kind of thinking about contests that I know a lot of the people who listen to this play, which is like a lot of the people that play this are not maxing. Uh, you know, the the ten dollar, the five dollar, whatever. Like a lot of the guys who listen to this play, the three max twenty dollar, the single entry twelve dollar. Like, and in those fields where people are more likely to be building their lineups by hand as opposed to just running whatever they're getting from their projections or from the daily roto optimizer or the osmo optimizer or whatever. Uh, I think that the course history, course fit, narrative guys tend to get, you know, a three to 5% bump in those formats. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I guess the the last thing I would add is we kind of move down through to the next years. We are going through DraftKings pricing right now. FanDuel is definitely a different game. It's a lot softer with the pricing. You can generally fit in better players. And so because of that, sometimes the top end guys like a, a Ram or JT end up like 45, 50% owned or even higher. And um, sometimes in those you can fit like a Webb Simpson on as the second or third guy, even on your rosters. And so, um, just keep that in mind. We are focusing mostly on the DraftKings pricing structure here, but, um, in general, regardless, you're trying to look for leverage from an ownership perspective and on FanDuel, you just get to do it with slightly better golfers. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's get into DraftKings pricing by range. We have five guys over 10,000, Rom, JT, Ricky, Webb, Buddy, and... We- we just went through those guys, so we're the, we're on the nine K range now. <laughs> I I didn't even get to say Hideki's name. <laughs> I thought we were still talking. I thought we were still talking. Uh, you could use your co- boy Hideki to transition fit. it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to talk. I want to talk about Hideki because I'm still super interested in him. At the, I mean, he is the highest projected owned guy, and uh, I I got to be honest, I'm still pretty interested in getting overweight on him uh, because. I, I guess, like, you know, again, by my estimation, I think he's just straight up a better play, like salary regardless, better than Webb, better than Ricky, and closer to JT than a lot of um, – like, certainly than their salaries would suggest, but also more than a lot of golf modeling would suggest as well. So I'm, I'm very interested in playing him. Yeah, I, I think he's priced fair. I would say for me it's easy to pivot down, like down in range uh, to Xander who I think is identical as far as projection, uh, pretty comparable. And you're getting a, you know, Xander might be like 15 to 17 and a half percent. Hideki, I've got like 25%. So if I was just building one lineup, it would just be easy for me to move to Xander instead of Hideki, leave 200 bucks on the table or upgrade somewhere else. Um, so I think that's where I, I've over the years kind of stopped trying to predict golf as much as I have trying to predict the ownership and make the, the leverage play from there. So I like Xander as a preferred play. And I think you get a huge ownership discount on Tony Fina this week too. Well, right, right now I have, I'm with Davis actually. So okay. I'm going more Hideki. Than, Love to see it. Then uh, uh, who's it, Xander. I mean, it, it, you know, the, again, uh, a couple years ago, Hideki would lose some points because he hasn't been playing super, you know, robot right. mode. 
but I don't know if that's going to happen anymore. But you know, right this second, uh, until these ownerships get sharper, I'm I'm going to roll it probably slightly above the field, right around there. Yeah, uh, I mean, and we already have talked about Finel enough, but he is like the kind like if you if you're just like you know what course fit course history not going to bother me. Finel would be a, a pretty good example of a guy to play under that format. Uh, a guy who. Just, I mean, I don't know what DraftKings is really doing with with Matt Kuchar, but like, guys, just not playing good golf, and he just uh, he maintains super high pricing. He is generally projected pretty high in ownership projections. I will have uh, no Matt Kuchar at all. I think. Yeah, I think Kuchar is one of the guys. One of the things I kind of add on to the the daily rotor projections is I regress it a little bit towards Vegas and using ownership projections um, from some modeling I did in the off season. Data Golf has Kuchar 24th in the field. I've got him 15th in the field. So that's still going to be a pass for me um, at the ownership projection that he's at. Uh, I think you talk about like the the fit and that when you think about like old school Kuchar with a course that is middle of the road and distance where accuracy matters slightly more, driving the ball matters. I see why people are talking about him. Um, I don't know if people end up clicking him in at 20% ownership, but that's where I've got it right now. I'm I'm going with him and Woodland about the same amount of ownership in both under the field as I have it projected right now. Okay, I I like that. I think I'll I'll be on Woodland, um, but but probably under on Kuchar too. Yeah. Um. All right. So I gotta I gotta admit though, the first thing that I thought when. When I saw the prices this week, as I saw Bryson at 9,100, you know, less than less than Colin Morikawa, less than Matt Kuchar, and I was just like, well, there's no possible way that I can win this week unless Bryson um, gets, you know, a T10 or better because I, I can't, I can't fade, I can't fade the scientist at 9,100. I mean, he's he's 200 dollars more than Brand Snedeker. Like he, like it just, they're just begging me to like pretty much go all in on him at this price. I can't help myself. Yeah, they they're begging so you. Oh, good. Uh, it is a it is a pretty nice price. It's pretty fair. I think he did well on the European tour last week. Had a little bit of a second yeah, injection. He, he choked yeah. again. <laughs> but uh, but hey, it's you know the waste management. They can't put him on the clock for slow play here, right? Like everyone's going to be playing six hour rounds. It's true. Yeah, and and Pepperell Pepperell said he wasn't actually that bad. So yeah, that's right. I saw that tweet. It's like it's like um like looking at a football line of away home and away favorite where you thought they should be favored by seven but they're only favored by three and you're like is this uh I think is the fix in here what this looks too easy this line looks too easy I, I, I you know with Bryson you know kind of actually contradicting what I've been saying earlier I he's gonna I bet he'll get a couple points less ownership because of his his play. Um, people don't like him that's the thing if you like bryson's if you think bryson is a good golfer he's always like three to five percent less owned than he should be because people do not like him Mm -hmm. unlike the guy above him colin morikawa i think he's just got that rookie everyone loves uh, everyone loves a a stud rookie uh so i'm gonna be over on bryson unless things change between now and thursday yeah, love I, to see it. Just start your lineups with Hideki and Bryson and figure it out after that. Figure it out after that. The toughest decision for me this week, and I know what I should do, but I'm not sure if I will do it. And I should play Brant Snedeker, who we've got 12th in the field at Daily Roto, regressing for Vegas. Still got him 12th in the field, 8900. I've got him projected for like five percent ownership right now. He is coming in with pretty good form this year as well. Like it's not when you're talking about a course where like driving the golf ball matters more than it does other courses. It feels crazy to to play Snedeker, but even like counting for that, like the the data golf stuff still has him as a good play. So I feel like an MME. I don't know where I'll cap his ownership. Like I'm not going to let him decide my entire week in a bad way. Like I'm not going to play him 40% of my lineups. But anytime you can get a guy that's in the top 20 of the field at like 5% ownership, I feel like it's a play that unless it's speed. That's the only time when you can completely disregard it is when it's beef. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're going to spend, uh, so if we're going to spend uh, an hour on this podcast talking about how uh, the, the, the edge left is exploiting holes in ownership, I, I cannot possibly say that Snedeker is not one of the best plays on the board. And then Brian, you played Jordan Spieth last week. You were over the field on Jordan Spieth. So oh, I know man. Th- the people need to hear you explain yourself. <laughs> I know it's embarrassing. It, it Are you really a Jason Rosalind burner account? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, do you guys think Spieth is going to win a tournament in the next year and a half? I do not. Yeah. What about you, Colin? Um, Colin probably does. I, I think it's pretty close. Uh, I, th- I feel like he will play a competitive schedule and he will be I, a top four so favorite. If the line in the was plus 100, you would be. I, I would make it. I'd I would make it. Uh, I'd make it a horrible Bovada 20 cent line minus 115 both sides and, and make them both a no bet. <laughs> okay. I, I, think, speed, I think, I think he'll win one. That would be so. Uh, so I, if you, give me if you think that, hand, then you should be jamming him. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, a year and a half. If you don't have to, I don't have to go 100% on him. I just think he still has talent left this week, and uh, though I'm not in love with him. So uh, last last week, you know, and he fell, he made the cut and fell apart. But you know, he's he he's. I still think he has. Talent. I just think it gets into the 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 psyche of the sports and DFS world when when good players just have a bad run. And, you know, you're betting money on them. You're putting them in layoffs and they keep screwing you. And you're just like, his career is over. Like, how many people thought Tiger's career was over? Everybody, right? I definitely did. Yeah, I mean, so, and Spieth didn't, didn't, didn't you know, fuse his back together. So, um, as far as I know. So, I think he's still, um, but again, I'm, I'm not really going to, uh, right now I'm at 6% just in this initial walkthrough here. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying take him. <laughs> so I'm just saying, eventually, depending on my pick from last week, I do think he's going to win one in a year and a half. So. I was going to say, you know, the model can't vary so much week to week, so you got a little bit of exposure in there. Uh, I think some of the the DFS fanboys, you talk about the profile for the course, uh, you talk about guys that people like to roster, and it's early in the week. They're not projected that high right now, but I expect ownership to go up. Kind of some attractive names in the next range with Scotty Scheffler, Victor Hovland. Um, and Matthew Wolf. Uh, if you look at previous guys who've done really well here, they're guys that the DFS guys have ended up playing a lot in Scheffler, Hovland, and Wolf, um, especially Scheffler and Hovland, as far as this, the ball striking metrics, stroke scheme, tee to green, stroke scheme, um, approach and off the tee play, like th- those guys are inside the top 25 in the field and all of that stuff. So I think they set up well for the course. I also think they're going to end up popular. Um, they're kind of good values in our projections, not extremely not like exceptional ones but i think they're guys that i'll end up with maybe a little bit more exposure to than the initial models would suggest i agree definitely hovland i mean i i already bet hovland 66 to 1 that it's already gone it's 50 to 1 now but uh i mean it's just like i yeah i'm gonna play i'm gonna play hovland uh i i think he's really good if it, like i would i would bait like so if the Jordan Spieth question, like, oh, do you think he'll win in the next year? I like I would say the same question for Hovland, and I would I would bet that at minus one twenty five probably. Like I like I, I think that Hovland will uh, for sure. A couple other guys down here who are projecting pretty well. Ryan Palmer at eighty two hundred. Uh, I'm not not the not the biggest fan of him overall, but uh, at under ten percent ownership, when you know we think guys like you know Shez Reevy and Brennan Grace are going to be popular, he probably is pretty good there. If um, if if Hoblin and Shuffle are going to eat up a lot of that ownership in this range, is what I think all three of us are guessing. Wolf and Moore could possibly be some low owned. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say high upside. Well, yeah, I guess you could say high, high upside for both of those guys. Uh, plays. And I, and I want to mention something really quickly. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that study done on uh, PGA golfers in their first few seasons coming out of college or off of the uh, Corn Ferry Tournament. It was web.com back then. But that they generally have this, this kind of um, uh, shake to their career where they start off strong in the first few years. And then a, a, a big percentage of them dive off, and just a few of them kind of survive and excel. Stay, yeah. A few of them, but they do, for some reason, start off hot. Who knows why? But there is some data backing up this narrative, which would mean that Hovland and Scheffler, you should, you probably, if they're on this kind of trajectory kind of ride that wave. And then I mean, it, make, it makes it so from talking to, you know, we had Joel Damon on the podcast, Tom Hoagie on the podcast, Dylan Fratelli. So from talking to those guys, it actually makes a ton of intuitive sense to me why that would be, which is you have to be playing so well to grind through those tours 
Like, because the, the margins in, you know, Monday qualifying and in the web.com, it's Corn Ferry now, you have to be playing super well to consistently, you know, earn your PGA Tour card. So your game is already in a good place. And then furthermore, at that time in your life, you're literally only golfing. You're not, you're not, you probably, a lot of times these guys, they don't have kids. They, they like, um, like Hovland, not, like not even married. I, I, Hoagie's not married. I think Dylan is married, but like literally their whole life is just golf. Like that's all they're doing. And you know, like everything in life, you can get burnt out. Uh, I assume these guys get injured. So like from like, um, just like an intuitive sense, it would totally, it totally shows like that is a logical thing for me to follow basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's data backing it up. So it's better than most narratives, right? That's why I'm on the show is to, is to provide color for the narratives. <laughs> that's I, I so I'm, paying, I'm paying my salary right now. Yeah, and it, it is always interesting. I, I think like the way that we project things um, at Daily Roto, a lot of times it's using like a similar blend of long-term and short-term form for the entire field and then some like small aging stuff. But I think there's like, I, I don't know if I can tease it out, but I think there is merit to thinking that some guys might be more form driven. Some guys might be like more splits oriented where courses impact them a lot more than other guys. And so you can see why that younger, the younger player stuff would matter a little bit. Um, I think the ownership's probably going to stick there with like Scheffler, Hovland. I don't, um, maybe Chez a little bit. I don't think the next kind of tier of players is going to get owned. And then I think there's going to be another kind of spot where it pops right up in that 7.6, 7.7K range, where I think, again, this week, Byung-Hun An will probably be, like, in the same, like, 125 to 15% ownership. Um, Keegan Bradley, I expect to be, you know, maybe, like, 7 to 10% ownership when things finalize. And Brendan Steele, I think, will be around 10% ownership as well. So I think that whole range of more Wolf, uh, Kokrak, Corey Connors, and Brian Harmon is, is pretty interesting to me just because I expect them to be passed up. Um, those are guys just, that I'll just another week of jamming Jason Kokrak. What what is it? What is a what is a boy to do, man? What what like I just I'm never gonna be able to get away from him or Corey Connors for that matter. And he wasn't very owned last week too, so I I thought maybe his name would get there. You know, top twenty five finishes, you know, more than you can really expect from anyone priced that range. So um, I think he'll be a good play again this week, and uh, I'll probably be like fifteen percent on a few of these guys opposed to like a 34 or 40% stand at any one of them individually. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. Uh, that, that makes sense to me. What, what about, uh, what about Danny Berger? Just another guy who I, I consistently like a little bit more than the market. Whereas like guys like Brian Harmon, I'll never play. We're going to have similar roster construction this week, David. I like don't, don't, don't worry. I will definitely find a way to mess this up with some fade or some lock. So, like, just because you like the same guys as me doesn't mean you're going to lose. I'll mess it up someone, somehow. Someone right. did ask us if you'd rather play 150 lineup from Davis or just exclude anyone with a two or six in their salary. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I'm but. not sure. So you like Berger a little bit in this range. Um, are there any guys that you're off entirely on ownership or is this a range where you're generally comfortable kind of playing guys as long as they're not like 25 or 30%? Yeah, Benny, uh, I'll go over again this and hit again. Um, I think, let's see here, JT Poston, like we just mentioned Berger. I actually kind of coming in really happy. Um, I don't know if that's right. So I'm gonna have less if it ends up being true. I'm gonna have less money. Um, but until uh, I might get a Thursday chart too, but if we're dropping down a little bit in the 7400, um, a pretty solid week last week, especially on what was it Sunday? Hoffman uh, uh, had seven or something like that. Um, nothing, nothing, and then a dark maybe call this week possibly i've had an on him for the last few weeks and possibly not uh it's a well yeah I, I think that makes sense um i'm breaking up a little bit so i might kill my camera just to improve the speed quality but the other guy i've been kind of buying at low ownership not getting exceptional results from but now the price is down I don't think the ownership is going to be that high again. Um, but I think that Billy Horschel is going to be another guy that I end up with a pretty overweight position on. And um, he was, you know, has ups and downs last week, but hoping that the final results will end up keeping people off of him. And 
it's a guy that I do think can contend despite the fact that he's missed, you know, two straight cuts and has a finish inside, barely inside the top 70 last week. Uh, he's at least playing golf recently and, and maybe that's a, a match of the feather, but the 7.4 K price and cheap ownership, I feel like I, I got to keep, uh, keep riding Billy Ho until we get either he, he gets me or I get the good side of him. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that is, I think that that is probably fair. Uh, I mean, there are a couple guys down here who are just jams for me. Obviously, Benny is one of them. Like, I, if, I don't know how I'm going to play Benny last week and not and not ride back on him this week. Vaughn Taylor. Uh, I, I do not share the projections love of Billy Horschel, but uh, as as noted earlier in the podcast, I am not a uh, I'm not a math savant. Someone someone I do like uh, and agree with the projections on though for sure is putting wizard Denny McCarthy uh that that guy I mean there there's never been a time where he's been standing over a 17 footer and I thought he was gonna miss it he just he loves he loves to nail them in uh what about uh what about this guy Lanto Griffin Brian or have you been riding his wave off of the uh the Corn Ferry Tour I've been fading him uh I think he threw that to me I and I yeah some, some reason you guys are waking up a little bit so if I if I step uh, over just let me know um yeah, uh, I've been fading him. He's been he's been pretty pretty darn high up for a while now, um, and that was burning me for a while. But uh, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna stick. It looks like you know after this first run, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with fading. You know, not that he doesn't have a lot of talent, and his ownership is dro- not his ownership. His price has dropped a little bit too, uh, so making him even a little more appealing. But in that 7200, you know, as of Tuesday, so a couple days. Uh, I'm actually looking at Adam Edwin and Landry. That okay. Landry is pretty interesting. Yeah. I, I think the, the guys, Lanto, I definitely like him a, a bit. And the other guys at 7.3, 7.2K that I was interested in. For hand-built rosters, these could be the, the last golfer, maybe the second to last golfer on your list. But um, Emiliano Grillo, I'm just always a sucker for someone with such good ball-striking stats. And so hoping maybe he he one day doesn't shit the bed around and on the greens. And then Adam Hadwin is another guy that, jumped on my radar um i generally cap my player pool i kind of cut guys off roughly around 15 percent top 20 odds that was one of the last questions i kind of had for you brian was um as we like look at punts and things like that you know are you generally playing guys that are super deep in the player pool i know it depends if you go up on the top end guys but or do you like to kind of cut the pool off at a certain caliber of golfer where you want them to have at least a minimum of like x upside in order to enter your lineups yeah, I so I in much every sport I never set caps or or minimums. Um, in hockey, I do do some different uh, do something different. There. But um, yeah, so like if I will get some some you know sprinkling of some of these montage type of guys, I don't purposely go through my you know 150 and X amount and then and then put another one in there. Um, you know, up, upside boom bust in golf for for me is is uh, different than the NBA, right? Like again, there's so much variance in this that I don't really think it works the same way. Where where in in basketball you can predict to relatively you know close amount of accuracy what the player is going to do on average that night. In golf, you really can't. And so in in some of these you know 0. 0.5, 1.5 guys. You know, as we started off, I was saying, you know, don't throw in six point, 1.5 on guys, obviously. But I don't think there's anything wrong with having, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a few shares of these lower on guys. And it's an easy way to get leverage on the field. Uh, you know, get like 6% on a 1% own guy. And, uh, you, know, they could eat, you know, they could definitely top, they could top 15. They don't have to, they don't have to take a one, two, three. So yeah, I'm I'm not to answer your question. I'm not I'm not posted at all. Within yeah. me. So kind of uh, just wrapping things up here with uh, a couple punts, you know, guys who are below 7K who I think are playable. Bryce Garnett would be one of them who I think he's got, you know, reasonable odds, about 14% to make a top 20. I think I think you could play him and not feel stupid. I think Aaron Baddeley is another one. He's above 10% for a T20 and above 50% to make the cut by the odds on data golf. Of course, you know, we wouldn't be going anywhere. Uh, do you, 
do you want to comment on Steve Stricker's projection, Drewby? Uh, so Steve Stricker, we talked a little bit about the Asian curve in golf and how it works for young guys. Well, Stricker is on the wrong side of the Asian curve. I wouldn't be surprised in MME if I end up with like a couple shares of him, but he's definitely a guy that um, I have not been playing at the same projection as, as the data golf stuff. I think I've got him like 70th in the field in my projections, which I guess at 6.1K in a, a small field where all guys have a reasonable probability of making the cut. Maybe I have a little bit of exposure, but I definitely have him closer to 70th than I do 45th in the field. He won't be owned though, so maybe a few percent here or there. Yeah. Uh, so just a, a quick, uh, a few quick thoughts on betting. Uh, last week we saw some big plus EV numbers at the top on data golf for Rory and Rom this week, basically the exact opposite. The first guy that you're getting with any EV at all is Woodland at 35 to one. And that's only offered on the DraftKings Sportsbook. I have only made, as I alluded to, as I alluded to earlier, the only bet I made, uh, thus far was Victor Hovland at 66 to one. That number is gone. You, you can't get it anymore. Um, the, the one other guy who would be interesting per the data golf projections would be Rory Sabatini or Von Taylor. For, for one and done, though, uh, I think that I am going to just go ahead and use my – I think I'm just going to go ahead and get Hideki out of the way. Who do you, who do you think wins this week, Brian? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around. There you go. Colin, who wins? Uh, I, I think JT wins. I think he, he puts on the, the Kobe jersey in the 16th hole and, and finishes it off. So I like him. The last guy I would throw in there is the bets. I know when I was looking at Brian's player pool, he had a lot of exposure to this guy last week in DFS. But Wyndham Clark is 600 to 1 on DraftKings Sportsbook. If you look at like Bet365 or FanDuel or William Hill, he's only like plus 250 or 250 to 1. Data Golf makes him like 400 to 1. So if you're looking for a 600 to one bomb, I think you can do a little bit worse than going with Wyndham Clark. Yeah, love, love a good, love a good 600 to one bomb. I'm going to go bet that right now before I forget. Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Colin, as always, thank you for uh, you know dealing with my narrative takes. And uh, guys, we will be back next week after uh, you know hopefully a, a good Victor Hovland win out in the desert. Build digital-first customer relationships with Salesforce Digital 360. Connect every marketing, commerce, and digital experience on a single platform. Innovate fast with easy-to-launch sites, campaigns, and apps. That's more relationships, more revenue, more return, and more success. Salesforce Digital 360. Hear from our customers at sfdc.co slash digital360. Contact World is a technology and media company dedicated to improving public health. And our podcast is our opportunity to dive into hot topics that are relevant to you, from contact tracing to vaccines to social and racial justice. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to know what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that affect you and your family's health. I'm Justin Beck. Join me and my co-host, Catherine and Deep D as we seek truth in health. Listen to Contact World, the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.